Hey guys, Ian here with another episode of Unleash and Unhinged, the podcast where we talk about all things dog. Dog training, dog behaviour, dog health, literally anything you can think about when it comes to dogs, we'll talk about on here. We hope you enjoy the episode. today's episode we've got my friend Andy Hale coming in to join us and I forgot to ask him to introduce himself at the beginning of the show so I'm just going to take a second to do that now. Andy is an incredible guy. He has done so much for our industry. He runs a Facebook group called Dog Centered Care. I really highly recommend anybody listening goes and checks that out. Um, He has his company in the UK called Train Positive. He has been on many, many podcasts in the past and presents all over over the place. Um, He was... I found out about him through the YouTube video uh, series, Beyond the Operant. Again, anybody interested, please go and watch that. Um, It's an incredible series on dog training or dog behavior, more to the point. Um, And Andy's expertise are around the emotional experience of the dog. So I I really hope you enjoy this episode. Listen in, and we're going to dive right into it. Well... First of all, I will say thank you very much just for being here. Um, it's an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on as always. And it's always just so nice to just catch up with my friend more than anything else, but uh, someone that I love absolutely geeking out with about dogs. So thank you very much for being here. Well, thanks, Ian. Thanks for uh, asking me back. And uh, you know, I was just I was thinking... Um... We've known each other quite a while now, and I was trying to think how we first got connected. Do you remember? I do, um, because it was one of these moments that I just really, I was listening to Beyond the Operant. And at this point, I had been listening to Mike's podcast for some time. I'd um, listened to Kim on Mike's podcast. And then when I was, when Beyond the Opera came out, that's when I first got introduced to you. Um, Mike and Kim had previously been so approachable. So I just thought, hell, I'm going to ha- reach out to Andy. And um, that's when we started talking. That's when uh, our um, first podcast together came about. Yeah, I remember now. Yeah, yeah. It feels like a long, long time ago. I suppose it is really in a way. But yeah, it's great to be back, mate. Well, thank you so much. It's I've learned so much from you um, about the emotional experience in dogs um, since that day. Uh, Beyond the Opera put me on a whole awesome path of learning ever since then. Um, and it's something I think me and you do have in common in the sense that we are trying to less work towards that militantly styled trained dog and more working towards just dogs that are emotionally stable and trying to get people to relate to them aren't we yeah totally and i think you know part of this whole thing for me is um allowing ourselves to question stuff i think we've been through a period of time in our community in the professional community specifically where um we just kind of did it without thinking maybe we should step back and think about stuff maybe it's trying to think about different things and 
Uh, and I think that's what this kind of uh, kind of approach is all about. And, and the emotional experiences, we were talking about this off air a little bit, it's such a cool lens to look through because uh, there's two main tenets for the emotional experience. One is we all have one. Uh, and even those who might not necessarily want to go down a route of, of kind of thinking about dogs and how sentient they are and, and you know, how they might think and feel, even they would recognize they would have a, an experience of some sort. If, you, if you're alive, you have an experience of some sort. And this brings on to the second bit, which is the big kicker for me, the big hitter, is that they're all unique to us as individuals. So I know I know no more about my dog and how they think and feel, Ian, as I know about how you think and feel. This is the beautiful thing about it, because um, uh, there is a richness to the lived experience of the individual. A lot of what goes on in society especially when we look at things through that good, bad continuum of putting the behavior of another on that spectrum. And especially the way we've treated dogs about somehow this conformist view of what behavior should look like without thinking about the need underneath it. And we've had these conversations with children, of course, you know, it used to be children should be seen and not heard. Um, we've had huge parts of our society. We had women should, should be seen and not heard when you think about how we've had that approach in the past. Uh, and even for us blokes, uh, kind of men have been ended up with, we should be seen or heard in a way. And as far as the old kind of way of looking at men as being somehow not able to show emotions, have to be strong, have to be this, that, and the other. So there's two universal truths for us humans one is we love to judge we love to judge and define the behavior of another and if it doesn't fit a narrative that we feel comfortable with we're more likely to feel compelled to want to change and control the behavior the second universal truth is we all hate to be judged <laughs> and that's because it's a, it's complicated you know what i mean i could make a judgment about you now and you could quite rightly say hang on and you don't know what kind of day i'm having you don't know what I'm dealing with right now. So, yeah, this is a beautiful richness then when we start stepping back and allowing ourselves to be a bit more humble, actually, and especially with dogs. The, you know, we're moving away from the arbitrary changing of behavior just because we can and starting to think more about what that lived experience might be for that individual dog. And two important things, what that behavior might have represented to that dog regarding communication as, uh, um, as a communicator of need. Uh, and secondly, uh, the behavior that we're replacing it with, because we want a different behavior, what innate value, if any, does that behavior actually have? Yeah. One final point on that, and then we'll move on, and, and this will let set us up is there's there's three things that I keep thinking that I, I, I they're always kind of reappraising things. That I think is a way to think about what unites us all, each other as humans, our dogs, the cat, the horse, it doesn't matter. And if we look at these three things, we can all relate to that for ourselves. And if we look at these three things, when we think about trying to offer care and support for another, we have to be mindful of. The first is we all want to feel heard, especially if we're trying to communicate need. To truly feel heard, we don't want to be dismissed, overlooked, ignored, or corrected, in inverted commas. We want to feel heard. That's a universal truth. And so do our dogs, right? They want to feel heard. They, they have needs. They want to try and communicate those. A part of that is the second one is that we all want to feel safe. Uh, and I, that's a lot for us to unpack, actually, which I, I think we will do about looking at safety in a more three-dimensional way. We want to feel safe. And uh, 
physically safe, socially safe, emotionally safe. We want to feel safe. And then thirdly, this is my big one, of course, is that we all want to feel relief. When you feel physical pain, emotional pain, or social pain, you will seek relief. Um, you know, a lot of the behaviors that we see as challenging, whether that in another human being or in a, in a dog or an animal, is often underpinned by the lack of safety and the lack of relief for something. So when we're doing our training, then it's not about not training, it's not about not using reinforcement, all these kind of things. Yeah, you know, the, the thing with aversive training. Without judging it, just looking at it in this way, it is. If you aversively treat another, you are saying, "I don't care how you feel mm. at the moment. I need you to do this or not do that." That's what that's about. So it's unlikely that the other will feel safer uh, and that we'll get relief. But even with reinforcement, we have to be careful that we're not just getting behaviours because we can, and we're still leaving an animal not feeling safe enough and not getting relief. So that's the key, isn't it, for what this whole discussion is about, Nick? You know, the, not just this discussion now, but, but the, the, the broader yeah. one that's going on, you know? I, yeah, I couldn't agree more in the sense, like, on, I was going to say in, in the sense, but honestly, I couldn't agree more on every level because there's something that, you know, I'll be t- helping, I'll be trying to get across to whoever I'm working with, whether that's, a team member, whether that's uh, a client, it's before we even start trying to change the behavior, we should, we've got to really ask ourselves, like, should we in that situation? Because there's a behavior, whatever the dog is doing in that moment, whatever anybody is doing in that moment, for them, it's served their needs. And if we keep them in that situation and without changing where they are and uh, what they're experiencing. If we just become belligerent in trying to just impose our will and go, hey, I, need, I want you to do this in this situation instead. That's, I want you to stop doing that. I want you to do this. Like you said, we're not taking on board. Well, we've got to ask ourselves, are we taking on board the fundamental reason, their need to have, that, why they feel that need to have done that behavior in the first place? And if we really start to overimpose, then we start to compromise potentially we start to compromise their perception of safety. We start to take away their only coping skills in that moment, or at least they're not necessarily their only coping skills, but the one they're obviously feeling most comfortable using in that situation. And before we change the behavior, before we try to change the dog's behavior, we really need to take a step back from that situation and look at it and go, well, why were they communicating that way? And that comes back down to those emotional reasons. You know, are you having a good day, a bad day? Uh, What's going on? What's going on with you, mate? Like, you know, let's find out. Let's unpack that before we just uh, like bulldoze in and go, I'm going to change his behavior. And underpinning that, of course, is whether there is or isn't any innate coping mechanisms in the first place. Because let's just move away from dogs a little bit and think about us. Yeah. We have a huge amount of expectation put on us from a young age to behave in a certain way. Now, this isn't about talking about some kind of Aniacal future where nobody there's no rules. <laughs> we, we are a social species, so we have to have certain rules. We have to have laws. We have to have the notion of social decency and that kind of thing. We have to have boundaries, but those boundaries are often they often become boundaries to unmet need, and this happens at a very young age at school. Uh, and a lot of us are kind of pushed through a conformist way of acting and behaving. Um, 
and how we do or don't communicate emotional need. And we all come through the other end. And I would just invite everybody to think, how's that working for you? Because for most of us, if not all of us, it hasn't been easy because we struggle with emotional health. We struggle with self-value, struggle with self-worth. We struggle with all sorts of stuff. So that's on a human level, but I see dogs in a similar way. I think when we start thinking through in this way and looking through this lens, everything needs to be thought about, especially what we do with that dog in that first 12 months. When we think about the emphasis that we have more traditionally put on structured learning, uh, a lot of that learning, I'm not saying it's not important to do training. I've got to keep saying that, in because that's what people tend to misrepresent. It's yeah. about thinking about more even the beyond the operant conversations the the important word there was beyond not it wasn't ditch the operant conversation it was beyond (laughs) so we have that kind of very task oriented obedience training whatever it is that we think about what we've got to recognize is the majority of what we're teaching that dog potentially has little or no value to them and definitely isn't going to help them navigate the world better So we've got to get a balance right. So, And also, a lot of the things that we know how important for the social brain is to find safe, secure attachment. Now, people might say, oh, attachment theory is uh, human stuff, isn't it? Well, guess what? A lot of the stuff that we came about regarding understanding about attachment was done on monkeys. So actually, uh, you know, um, it depends on which way you want to look at it. So um, how often then when that dog is struggling, hasn't got enough time to process, is feeling unsafe. They're trying to represent that through their behavior, which often with young dogs is that fizzy, kind of silly behavior. Are we becoming unavailable to them? How often do we still have a kind of abandonment, really, in the form of quite lengthy timeouts as puppies to deal with behavior? What impact does that potentially have to some of these young forming brains regarding losing safe attachment? There's a lot of things to consider, I think. So when you and I get to meet a dog, especially when we're doing behavioral work and they're older, uh, you're absolutely right. We've got to give that dog a chance to let us know their story underneath all those layers and to try and be more available to it as best we can, rather than adding even more of we have decided you're going to behave like this because the dog's already experienced that. Um, and potentially that's why the dog is dysregulating in the way they do, because they're not feeling heard potentially. They're not feeling safe and they're not getting relief. And the feeling heard's important because the general public have been kind of convinced that the most important thing is a well-trained, obedient dog. The issue being there is that everything becomes an obedience problem. You know, and if if we're expecting compliance at all time, if we're expecting task at all costs, where's the opportunity for that dog to tell us I can't? right now or i'm struggling right now or i'm in pain right now or i'm stressed right now uh and it's important and i think that there's a big difference between what we're taught and what we learn and i saw a video recently uh with a trainer great trainer uh doing positive training with a dog that i felt seemed quite uncomfortable in that environment and wasn't getting it so they were showing how they were going to change the reinforcement schedules and ramp up the reinforcement which is great from a training geek point of view but in the end the dog got it and did it right so the dog has been taught something but what has the dog learned in that process about exits being able to communicate that they're struggling being able to stop it's just it's just a lot 
to consider for us, really, when we're doing training? Oh, there's so many little things in this that I, I'm going to just try and unpack because I think the first thing I will, I'm going to dive into here is we sh- we really can't take, going back to the, be- to the fact that we really can't take our dogs' perception of their own safety for granted. Um, when I'm looking, and I think you're probably looking through a similar lens in the sense that when I'm looking at a dog, I'm not looking for, cert- and certainly not looking for good and bad behavior. That lens just doesn't exist for me anymore. I've trained myself out of looking at dogs that way um, because, well, fundamentally, that's not what they're trying to be. <laughs> they're not trying to be good and bad. But I look at their their behavior and their body language and what they're saying. And the first thing I will see is whether or not I, from my, from my perspective, do they feel safe or not? And it doesn't matter what else I'm trying to do with the dog. As soon as I see the dog feel unsettled, unsafe, my goalposts move to trying to change that so that they do feel safe and secure again regardless of what i was trying to achieve with the dog in the first place because and i and i I said this off air but i'll i'll say it again it's a quote and i would love if to remember who i'm quoting here um but somebody said found their the dog's foundation our foundation of behavioral health uh, is set by the safety like their perception of their own safety and as soon as that's compromised i mean you anybody you, you and i anybody that's listening will will know this as soon as your own sense of safety is no longer there no longer present that's pretty much all you can think about and so if i can see that my dog no longer feels that way my body language my my whole intention changes i'll take away I'll do my very best to, because I'm still human and still um, get caught up in what I was trying to achieve, like any normal person. But I, but I'm trying to always trying to be better at taking a step back from what it is that I wanted the dog to do and go. Okay, first, my next agenda is to make you feel safe again. Ideally, so that I can go back to what I wanted to do because I'm still that yes. selfish person. <laughs> but, yeah. selfish, I, I, this is you've just described that beautifully, actually, because um, I talk a lot about the friction between task and care, uh, and um, you know, task being that you know I want the dog to do something uh, or not do something. And if you are really into task, it doesn't mean you don't care, but the more you expect task, the more you go down that route, the less you can care about the extras. It is like we talked earlier about aversive punishments. It's a case saying, look, you know, I get that you're feeling something right now, but I don't care about that because you're going to do this anyway. Mm. That's the risk of task. Um, the same happens with humans, especially in the human care setting. You can end up just get, following through with task. Care is still about task. You know, I'm talking at the Gundog Conference in a few weeks' time, which is, you know, all about I don't forget, because I'm not a trainer, as, and, I, and I've never trained a Gundog, so we'll see what happens. Uh, but um, but it's amazing to be there to talk about this stuff, because the person who's organising it recognises, you know, you can't get more tasks than Gundog work. And people want performance, and they've got a job to do. And the reality is that task, that performance, is done much better when the one doing it is in a, in a, is in a well-regulated, 
state and feels fundamentally safe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've all been in situations at work where we've had to follow through with tasks when we're not feeling well, we're not feeling safe, we're emotionally upset, whatever. And it's hard and you resent it. You know, uh, it's not free flowing. So I hear you on that. And this is the point, you know, once that dog is able to be in a better regulated state and um, they're in a more optimal state to learn and to respond, the partnership can continue. There are things that we were going to ask our dogs that they may not always want to do. Mm. And that's just things are the this, this stuff I asked my husband to do. He didn't want to do and vice versa. There's a point we do it with our human loved ones, not just our dogs sometimes, but it has to be equitable. And it has to be in a place where we're at least setting that other up to be in a place that they can, they, they can succeed with it. Yeah. We, and we live in a really, we, and our dogs live in a really human world. It's a very unnatural world in many respects. There's, you know, it's a human living condition that we're asking our dogs to live in. And I think it's important to distinguish the fact that we're not always talking about whether or not the dog is safe. It, like Physically, our dogs, we know that they are safe, like 99.9% of the time. But it's whether or not they feel it. And it's not just, it's... In, in terms of how often our dogs feel unsafe, we're not talking all the time and necessarily about whether the dog is in any physical danger or anything like that. It's the emotionally safe. Do I feel emotionally safe around that individual or in that in my? Uh, does my dog feel safe in my care? Um, because I think a lot of people might brush it under the carpet and go, "Well, he is safe. So mm. what's he? What's his problem? Like he should be fine." And we can't, it doesn't matter if you think your dog is safe. If your dog is communicating that they don't feel it, I think they they need to be taken on board like any other individual. Hmm. Yeah, it's a really good point. And this is an interesting thing about how our brain works. So when we think about the behavior of another, uh, when we think about another, sorry, just more generally, whether that's a human family or friend or the dog, we tend to think in terms of physical safety. Uh, you know, keeping them safe. That's what we mean by that is keeping them from harm. But our own brain is just as and often more focused on emotional safety and social safety. So a, a basic definition for emotional safety, as well as just kind of trying to keep your emotional health safe, of course, there is that element. But more fundamentally, from a from a human point of view, especially um, emotional safety is the... Uh, Trust and openness in a relationship. Mm. Trust and openness. To, to, so when you feel emotionally safe, you you are able, underpinning that is the ability to communicate without fear of judgment, dismissal, correction, whatever, um, you know, uh, just being dismissed. Yeah. Social safety is a big one, of course. And, uh, you know, we are really, especially when we're working with clients, we have to recognize the power of this. And this is interesting again. So when we think about the, the our increased understanding of the how important the social side of the brain is, um, and how when we fear or experience social rejection, how painful it can be. A lot of that early research, when we think about the social pain uh, hypothesis by Pansket, who was the person who who really pioneered thinking about the brain as a series of emotional circuits, that was done on puppies. 
So and when people say, what's well, so it got, you know, why are you talking about human stuff? What's going to be dogs? It's got everything to do with it because we share way more than we don't. Um, so, and this has been furthered on. So, so going back to that, then the, the uh, what Pansket did was he got uh, some puppies and took them away from the mom. We wouldn't do this kind of thing nowadays ethically, but so they were really upset. Uh, obviously, because they've been taken away from mom. Uh, then he injected them with a with a small dose of opioid, and they were they were fine in a bit because they seemed to cope a lot better. So that kind of implied then that. A physical, what we would see as physical pain relief, seemed to help for, in, like an emotional pain, if you like. And this has been furthered now. Um, there's a guy called Matthew Liebman at UCLA, who's took this a lot more up to date now with doing kind of FR, uh, FM, uh, fMRI imaging scans of the brain. And there's part of the brain that fires up when we when we experience social rejection, is the same part of the brain that fires up when we have physical pain. So whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, or social pain, we've got to see them all as the same. I spoke at the London Vet Show um, last autumn here in the UK, and uh, and I was talking to the vets about we, we. It's been said before, you know, is it pain or is it behaviour? And that's just not fit for purpose because, well, guess what? Behaviour isn't anything separate anyway. But the question we've got to ask is: is this physical pain or is this emotional pain? And both are equally valid and both are needing support. So yeah, so coming back to this thing, the social, the social side of things is really important. And uh, we have to think about that when working with clients, because often if you've got a dog who struggles in the environment specifically, and they're lunging and barking and whatever else, uh, a lot of the challenges for the caregiver is the embarrassment they feel, the judgment they feel, the, sh- the shame they feel sometimes, you know, and all these kind of things. But equally for the dog, you know, um, they have the same uh, neurology that we do for social threat evaluation, and it's important. And if you think about the social environment specifically, there are three core elements. How we process, this is the same for the general environment, by the way, um, how we process how we need to process to feel safe socially. Ideally, that should be being done almost subconsciously, really. But if you're more sensitive, if the dog's more sensitive, which isn't a defect, by the way, it just is, means that you need more time uh, to process whatever it is, um, uh, then you're more aware of that processing. You know, anybody who's listening in who's a bit more reserved or a bit more socially anxious, will know what it feels like. And in fact, we've probably all, all, all experienced it when that social environment starts to get a bit too much and you feel anxious about it. So social processing is really important. And the more sensitive you are, the more you need to do that processing first. Then if you feel safe to, you then decide whether you do or don't want social engagement, which is the next thing, let's set of preferences. So we have to learn from the dog what are your social processing preferences, then we have to learn their social engagement preferences. Now, that in itself is is a big area because um, choosing to engage and having agency to do so is really important, but it isn't just about thinking, okay, I feel safe now, let's, let's be sociable. Uh, the more confident the more, the more you can go with the flow. But again, the more um, the more sensitive you are about these things, the more you need that engagement to fit a certain way. So if I was to come and see you and you're my client, um, I'm, I would be guessing that for many people that processing, the initial social processing done subconsciously, so I don't pose a threat to them and whatever else. And then uh, if, I, if we sit down and have a cup of tea, then the engagement side of things also hasn't fired anything up. But if I run in and give you a big kiss on your forehead and give you a big big cuddle right depending upon how important it is for that engagement to be in a certain way will be dependent upon your thing now you might think if you're a bit more 
I've relaxed and, and, and robust about these things. Oh, that was a bit weird. What a bit, of, but that's how he does things. That's fair enough. Other people will be deeply offended by it or feel very, un- insecure, uh, very unsafe by it. Uh, and then the final thing about these things, so we've got social processing, social engagement. The final thing is about the knowledge of and the seeking of social exits. How many dogs do we work with? You know, this thing because we work in very similar ways. When you have you meet a dog who initially they present with barking and lunging and everything else, and there is a presumption that maybe that dog is fearful of the other dog. Some dogs might be. Uh, the, well, I say majority. Many of the dogs I work with, they're not showing signs of fear per se about the dog. What they are showing me is that they haven't had a chance to do their safe social processing first. And when they do, it's amazing how many show clear signs of looking for social exits. And when you start giving them, they start to be able to cope better. So it's interesting. And I think um, uh, the whole point of safety is is a big topic. And I I think it does come down to that. Those three elements um, are so important to us. I know how important they are to me. Um, And it just makes perfect sense as to why, why, of course, they're important to our dogs as well. Like the... um, the analogy that's running through my head is the relationship that I've got with Emma, my, my wife. We socially process so differently. We have, you know, I I look at social situations so differently to, to, to the way she does. Um, and they're not always the same. You know, there's times where she absolutely want, loves it when it's really busy. And there's times when I love it when it's really busy. There's times where I love it when it's really, uh, I just need it to be really calm and predictable but at the same time there's nuances around each and each of each of every single experience the way that we engage is also so different um you know emma is the go in say hello to absolutely everybody all at once give everybody a hug whereas i turn up go and get a beer and sit back down and want to speak to everybody one-on-one and then i'll slowly warm up and before and and it's interesting as well as the night goes on or the day goes on, Emma becomes more and more quiet, whereas I become the loudest one in the room. And then, but at the same time, the the exit route one is something that I think is so 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 important. As soon as either one of us feels that we can't leave, you know, we're, we're even if it's before it's even happened, if I feel like I really have to go there and I don't have a choice. I start to feel uneasy about the thing. Um, if I'm in the thing and I all of a sudden, for whatever reason, again, it doesn't matter why, but if I feel like I need to leave, if that's taken away from me, you will see my behavior become more and more agitated because, well, I wanted to leave. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and my relationship with Emma, it's actually something that I'm, I'm really proud of to be honest, without tooting my own horn too much. But the two of us have got a really nice dialogue where I never feel like I have to do anything. I never feel like I have to go anywhere. Emma never puts me in that position in the first place. She doesn't micromanage me on the way that I engage. So I never feel guilty for my behavior when I'm in a social situation. So then I've got emotional security in my partner. and. If I ever want to go home, Emma never shames me for doing that. And that has been a fundamental part of my relationship with Emma, because before her, the relationships that I'd been in, 
I had always felt this social pressure, not necessarily about the occasions, but feeling a little bit trapped and a little bit micromanaged by my my significant other. Um, And for me, this has actually formed one of the healthiest parts of our relationship. And the way that can relate to our dogs in a really basic way of looking at it is asking, you know, really looking at your dog's body language and going, do you want to go? And then when you're there, how do you want to express yourself? And Mm. if, if you start expressing yourself in a manner that I don't feel comfortable with, rather than trying to shut that behavior down, I'll try to change the situation so that you can communicate in a different way because you're obviously communicating that way for a reason. And at any one point, if I see my dog get uncomfortable, letting them know, I'll protect the exit route. I'll let them know, you can leave, you can walk away from that. And Mm. again, going back to the, if it's a puppy, if I do that from the beginning, I'm, my goal with that is not to be permissive of their behavior whatsoever, but to give them a space to be able to communicate their needs. And over time, I will build some, I will build a lot of emotional resilience. I will build a lot of trust in me. Um, and the same goes for if I'm working with that dog that has had previous negative experiences. My goal is to build their confidence up and build their trust in social situations and me as a caregiver to be able to, for them to be able to turn to me and look to me as that support network. And that's really powerful because when we think about socialization in inverted commas, the most powerful thing about getting a dog to be able to navigate the social environment more safely is knowing they don't have to. It's really simple, but fundamental. We've all, as children, been forced into the, you know, we've all had like up in our bedroom, Auntie Mary comes around and, we're, and we don't want to come down. Like, get down here and see your Auntie Mary. Let her give you a kit. We're kind of forced into it, right? Uh, it's the knowledge you don't, it's, it's the exit's important. Molly, who's our young um, dog, she's not that young, now. she's coming to two years old, believe it or not. But, um, she, uh, that first 12 months, you know, we did nothing that you would normally think about doing because we took our leave from her. So there's only two things that we wanted to teach her. First is that she was safe and we were her return to safety. And that's an important phrase there, that return to safety. So when she didn't feel safe, we were her return to safety. And then we had to make sure that we just did our bit by managing and adapting environments so she could dysregulate, go through what she needed to. We weren't on her all the time about don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. We were just letting her go through stuff and, and working out what she needed in order to process the world around her in a safe way and in a way that meant something. And the second thing we wanted her to learn, that she would always have the time to process in a safe way, in a way that meant something for her. So actually, she didn't meet loads of people, men with beards, men with sticks, loads of women. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do it that way. I'm I'm very keen to point out this is Molly's story. Molly came to us at 16 weeks, two homes already, extremely sensitive, very fizzy, very bitey, all the kind of things. So um, we just kept exposing her in different ways to different environments and got that feedback. And uh, we live on a beach here, which is great. And uh, she never saw the beach until she was 10, 11 months, because that was the time she was telling us I can deal with this now, which is great. But um, uh, so she didn't get, we, we actually did a lot of her not seeing much of the world, getting her to regulate well, 
all the stuff I just mentioned before. So in her case, then, the fact that she hadn't met all those different things didn't matter, actually. If she'd learned those other two lessons, if she learned she could feel safe and were her return to safety, and secondly, if she knew that if she comes across something she's not sure of, that she's got the time to process it, it should be okay, guess what? She can meet anything now. So we met a horse recently, never met a horse. The first thing she did was back off and air sent the air. And I said to Kieran, that's brilliant because she's like, I don't know what this is, Mm. but I've learned I have time to work it out. Rather than a lot of young dogs who are just put under a huge amount of pressure all the time in, uh, because the general public, again, have been told that the dog must meet loads of people and go lots of places and do all this kind of thing. That's fine if the dog is showing they're coping with it. Because if they're not, you've just got nervous system being overwhelmed again and again. And I think a lot of the dogs in inverted commas that are reactive are dogs who are more sensitive, who want to process before they engage, whether that's with it socially or environmentally. But the engagement comes first because they're already forced into an environment or they're forced to socially engage because everybody wants to touch you. Every dog wants to run over to you. So it's no wonder then between that kind of six to 10 months-ish that they start to be, in inverted commas, reactive, because that more socially or environmentally defensive brain starts to really kick in then because the brain's now learned, do you know what? I don't have time to do that. Hmm. And I'm going to expect that engagement happens first. Uh, and uh, we see that a similar process with a lot of humans, actually, who struggle because they weren't equipped as a younger person, as a younger person and a younger adult to be gifted the time that you need for yourself because of the expectational stuff of being social. Bull. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting isn't it, when you unpack it and talk about it in these terms and it's, and it's beautiful. And actually some people are thinking, Oh God, you know, this sounds really complicated and you know, it's much, a lot more simple when I was just doing training. <laughs> it's actually really simple. It's not easy at times, but it's simple, which is slowing down, taking a breath and being humble enough to learn from the other. And that includes ourselves, right? What you talked about earlier about with, with your wife is, is amazing because there's three outcomes for a relationship. You either have the relationships where one of the two is finding themselves suppressed in different ways, and that becomes a relationship of suppression. Or you end up with the friction that comes with that, and you end up splitting up. Um, because, uh, and especially, you know, when we think about beliefs and values, we can have different beliefs, actually. You know, um, I could I could be friends with, and I do, um, people have different beliefs to me. That's that's easier to navigate. That's why you can have a couple in a family, one who's right wing and one who's left wing. Yeah. Because if they they believe they believe different politically, but this is the thing, it becomes more problematic if you don't share the same values. Yeah. So you could be right wing and left wing, the other person be left wing, but still have the same value, which is looking at the furtherance and betterment of society. Great. So this thing about value is important, and uh, but when you but the third thing, which is the best combo, is where you're really aware of each other, and you make compromises, and you you advocate for each other, and you, you support each other's sensitivities, like you say. And I think that's the key, and that's what we should strive for in our relationship with our dogs, because those two outcomes are the same. You either end up with a relationship of suppression, or you end up with a relationship that's going to break up in quite a severe way. Actually, sometimes with dogs. Absolutely. You know, we, you said earlier, and um, just want to go back to this point a little bit. Um, it's not about not training your dog because 
whether you like it or not, you know, that I don't love the word training, um, but that's the one that gets floated around a lot. <laughs> um, but it is for me, I'm building communication uh, skills with my dog. I'm, I'm building my ability to communicate with my dog. And that is a, uh, I always uh, refer back to the dialogue. It's a double-edged uh, thing in the sense that, yes, I want to be able to communicate my my wants and needs to the dog. Hey, mate, come over here, go over there, blah, 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 stay. Here's a big one. <laughs> but it's uh, in doing so, if I engage in a dialogue with the dog rather than this um, monologue of instructions, I instruct you do, I start to learn about their body language and I start to listen to what they're saying and ha- what's your opinion on what we're trying to achieve here. And in doing that, I am one of the consequences that inevitably, for me, it does, it is inevitable that comes along with that. If I start actually looking for what are you saying about what it is we're doing, I do then, if I, if I do adapt in those moments, I inevitably become uh, the person they come back to for safety mm-hmm. because I've, I'm the one that's consistently set them up to, hey, mate, would you like to try? So, uh, you know, it, being, a, being the human in this human-dog relationship, it's all, it is us that goes, hey, we're going to go to the beach today. We're going to have guests over today. We're going to have, we're going to be doing this. We're the ones that make suggestions about what we're going to be doing today. But by not just plowing on, uh, regardless of how the dog feels, and taking their opinion on board and listening to them, and if they're enjoying it, let's crack on, let's go and have a good day, and brilliant. But if not, well, let's make adjustments, and however those adjustments might be, how minorly changing the environment, maybe even just using my communication skills with you to try something else, um, or changing the situation altogether because it's absolutely going to shit. Then over time, we do develop that healthy relationship where it's like, hey, would you like to try? And they're like, yeah, maybe. Let's have a go. And then we go, if we take it, but we're always in the moment. We're not just going through the motions of, I'm going to do this today. You better get on with it. And yeah, look, we're all guilty of it to a point. But if we've got that lens, then you can't help, for the most part, notice, go, Oh yeah, you you didn't. We're not enjoying this today. Or sometimes, you know, there's things that I'll do with my dog almost routinely. But even if they are part of my routine now, I might I will notice. Oh, you know, Otis wasn't hasn't been doing well with what what we usually do for the last three days. Let's look at why. So I start to reflect a bit more and really start to fall out of not fall out of, but I don't necessarily stick to my hard and fast patterns as rigidly as I think some people feel that they must with their dogs. Mm. Um, Because ultimately, my dog isn't a robot, just like I'm not. Like, I love running. And in theory, I like to run on Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. It doesn't mean I run every Monday, Thursday, and Saturday, because I'm an individual and sometimes I've got drinks sometimes i've got back pain sometimes i just don't bloody want to and i want to eat pizza on the sofa and our dogs yeah. are no different no and i think uh, i love what you i find that i think training teaching whatever um it is about building a vocabulary um that we can better communicate but 
communication is about two-way, otherwise it's just demands and commands. So everything has to be a request, whether we like it or not, because, um, you know, short of physically making another do something, it's a request. They either will or they won't. And if we always see the won't in the moment or can't actually more often uh, as a being an obedience issue, we're just stopping any form of communication. And I think, and also I think when you build up, remember emotional safety is the feeling of trust and openness in a relationship. So when you build that up with your dog, when you take in their considerations, how they're doing, when you kind of nurture that kind of safe connection and attachment, you have a lot in the bank when you get it wrong. Yeah. You know, sometimes when, you know, uh, where I'm like, you know, just, just not now. I can't deal with this now. Go away now. Shut up now. Whatever it is. <laughs> and that's the same with our human relationships, isn't it? You know, we can all get into that state where it's like, I can't, you know, not now. Or something. Um, uh, and then uh, so it becomes less of an issue because because it is just a transient moment. So it is about these, it's about it's thinking first about how would we want to be supported and then thinking it's, it's just a simple principle really about having the compassion and empathy to connect to another really. And, um, uh, you know, I think there is a welfare crisis I can only talk about here in the UK, which is underpinned by a chronic lack of awareness. We've left the general public because of this obsession with training with knowing how to teach a sit and expecting it all the flipping time, right? Mm. <laughs> um, but not knowing what stress looks like, body language, pain, not understanding developmental phases, not understanding that, for example, that dog's brain literally won't be able to cope properly until at least 18 months, for example. So I feel for the general public then. Yeah. Because on, on top of that, they've got these TV shows. Again, I'm going to talk in the UK, the majority of which are very task at all costs, you know, as in we will get the dog to stop barking, dot, 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 Um, So the poor caregivers then who deeply care for their dogs, many, the vast majority of them, and love them, and um, are just not equipped enough with the right perceptual lens to see need when it's slapping them in the face. Yeah. And that's yeah. not about them. It's about the fact that we've got to this stage. And I would argue, being a bit of an old Gideon, uh, you know, you youngsters wouldn't know. Uh, but when I was growing up in the 70s here in the UK, whenever you really trained their dog much. Uh, we had Barbara Woodhouse on the telly. You did a bit of training. I'm not saying welfare was better or worse then, but you kind of did have a relationship where you just had your family pet and they were a dog. And, uh, you know, if the dog growled at me, mom would be like, what are you doing to, what are you doing to the dog? Yeah. Not making it all suddenly that the dog is a problem. And uh, so I think we've got to redress the balance. We've got to say it's not about turning away from training at all. It's just recognising, do you know what, it is important to invest time in teaching those things and those life skills, as long as they are truly life skills uh, for the dog. Um, but at the same time, we've got to give the dog a voice too. We've just got to find that middle ground more, I think. comes down to those three uh, needs that you talk about with the dogs, you know, that feeling heard. If we help our dogs feel heard and feel validated, um, we help them feel safe. And if they don't feel safe, we provide them with that relief. Then you're going, if you live a life like that with your dog, 
And yeah, training and building communication skills is a part of that. But that's why I don't like the word obedience. It it falls mm-hmm. away from that. It falls very obedience brings around the lens of well, what I said matters, not what how you felt. So it moves away from yeah. uh, that dialogue that we talked about. And over the, by concentrating on those three things, we will help the dog to be help the dog with their emotional stability and resilience. So what you talk about in terms of you put a lot in the bank. You, you if you make a mistake or if the dog does go through a trauma, their resilience to that stress, their ability to bounce back is so much higher and, mm. and better because we've laid that as a foundation. It's that the opposite to that is constant testing, constantly putting pressure on without relief. And mm. you will raise a very fragile and brittle dog that breaks easily and then can't recover because there's no emotional stability as a foundation. And in terms of yes. why... Sorry? No, I was, I was just agreeing with you. And I think, and especially if, the, if, if there is no return to safety in that brain, mm. uh, it's very interesting. And there's a phenomenon in children mainly, but also you get it in adults. Um, and actually I experienced it myself when I was doing at my kind of advanced college doing my A-levels, uh, a notion of selective mutism, uh, where you feel you can't talk in this situation. So uh, some people have that on a very high level, so they can talk at home, but they can't talk. With them. But um, I, I, it's a similar thing I see with some dogs. There are some situations that they just can't communicate freely now. Yeah, because they're fearing. Um, do I do it this way? Do it that way? How, how do I do it? And I think it's important. And I think the opposite to obedience isn't disobedience. Yeah, the opposite to obedience is freedom. Actually, yeah. the freedom to do something else. Yeah, and that's what we're taking away, whether we like it or not, with a with a strict obedience compliance model. Mm. Freedom, the agency to do stuff. Including to express yourself, including to express, to literally express self. Yeah. You know, behavior is an expression of need. Behavior is an expression of self. Your behavior, all the listeners listening in, there will be aspects of your behavior that will be just as unique and authentic for you as the way you have your hair and the clothes you wear. The, the moments when the dog and us, when those, when we don't feel safe and we don't get the relief we need, that's when we get that emotional dysregulation and that's when people call dog trainers and for a dog trainer to walk in and then go through that, uh, to come in and make it about task, make, make it about what the dog needs to complete arbitrary behaviors because we think these behaviors are better rather than looking at it and going, what are the needs of the dog? What are the emotional needs of the dog? Why was the dog communicating that way in the first place? It completely, it just compounds the issue. It just devalues why the dog was doing it. That it just, and it go, and we can very, and that traditional lens of dog training that you've talked about, that definitely dates, goes down that route. It goes down the wrong route, in my opinion, of, well, sod what the dog was thinking and saying, we need it to do this instead, which is going to compound so many more problems and and you're going to create at best you're going to suppress that but create a -a whack-a-mole situation and 
do nothing for the relationship. It, the behaviors are going to get expressed elsewhere, and we only break down the relationship in the sense that they no longer see us as the one that they can return to for safety. Yeah. I think you've kind of summed up the whole the whole of that chat in that. I think it's, it's good <laughs> kind of comes circle because that's what it comes down to, I think. Um, when we get to a point in any relationship that one doesn't feel that they can communicate and be emotional, but also to to do something in a dysregulated way, because we all can, we can all get angry, we can all get upset, we can all, you know, then uh, it becomes a problem, a big problem, actually. Mm. Because, uh, uh, and, and humans, uh, you know, especially for us men, of course, uh, where there has been a huge amount of emotional suppression historically, uh, the, when people say, oh, I, I don't get emotional, then they're telling porkies to themselves, because you will, what you're saying is, I don't acknowledge that feeling, and yeah. I won't, uh, I won't acknowledge that, 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 uh, that it might need support. Feelings are important. Feelings and emotions, they're not a, they're not a wishy-washy thing. Uh, they are telling us clearly how well we are or not connecting to something. So that's why the relief thing is important. If you feel physical pain, that pain is telling you you need to do something about this. Mm. Emotional pain, the same. Social pain, the same. If we just keep pushing it to one side, pushing it to one side. I saw a video recently with some well-known, I don't know, pop rappery person. I don't know. I'm not really into that. So, uh, show my age again. But anyway, uh, he's, he's well-known. But he was saying, men, listen to me. If you, uh, if you have the death of a family member, fair enough. You know, if this happens, fair enough. But other times, you, you've got to be a man. You've got to be a rock. I was thinking, wow, that is just really quite toxic advice. Yeah, because there's a great saying, and, and that is emotions will find a way, and they and they might not be now, it might not be a year from now, it might be ten years from now, but these real suppressional aspects of emotions are not only in, more likely to kind of uh, bring along trauma of some sort. Um, they they will lead to uh, to to an outpouring at some point. Yeah, and. Uh, well, that, that in itself, that holding it together to the point where, you you know, as a man, you get told, hold it together, hold it together, hold it together. And look, there's an, there's an element of being able, you know, we do need to, I'm not saying just let everything out all of the time. It's not about that, but it's, uh, we all need to acknowledge, it's so much healthier to acknowledge, this is how I'm feeling. And mm. you know, even as as uh, as that behind what's the saying? Um, and I don't agree with it, but and you won't either, because as I say, it, you're just going to go. <laughs> but um, behind every great man's a great woman, and that's crap. In the sense that that's not that's only a tiny little part of the picture, because what that's saying is behind that strong image of a man. What that person's actually got is uh, women are notoriously more, more emotional beings than us. But what they're saying is, well, behind that, you've actually got a support network that you can drop your guard and be and feel safe with, right? Yes. <laughs> so, and, and also, uh, I think um, the, the thing about this, some of this is it's uh, it, it's doubly it's doubly uh, problematic. Yeah, because um, you know. 
the, the the implication with the normal dynamic is man must be strong. And as you, as you say, it's not about everybody kind of succumbing to everything all the time. There are times where we, we step up and we get we do things. That's the same regardless of gender. This is the point. Yeah, that's right. That's it. Keep doing that without recognition of the hurt, the damage, the emotions, the needs becomes problematic. So my husband's an end-of-life nurse. He works in a hospice. I, I talk about him quite a lot because it's an amazing job, right? It's a hard job. Mm. He needs his supervision. He needs his safe space. He gets proper supervision at work, but kind of with me, he needs to be able to get in that car. Doesn't matter how my day's been, I need to let him let me know stuff. He needs that out. And I guess what if he didn't have that, or if he felt I can't share it because I can't, I can't be emotional. It, it becomes really problematic, and um, uh, and especially in in relationships, you know, uh, it's important to be able to recognise these things because. As I say, it's not about wishy-washy stuff. That emotion is telling you something that you're better off listening to and sitting with uh, and and trying to work that out rather than just keep suppressing it all the time because a lot of the time it comes out in different ways uh, and that can be withdrawal and it can be aggression. Yeah. Because guess what? We see the same in dogs, but we see the same in humans. And, uh, you know, uh, it's easy to kind of end up having that outpouring come through a fist. Well, that, actually, yeah. Well, that uh, withdrawal, you know, when we see a withdrawal of behavior, so that muted behavior, often with dogs gets labeled a good dog. Mm. And that, that can be a problem because that in itself, that dog isn't trying to be good. He is, he is either complying because he doesn't know what else he's allowed to do, which is a horrible state of mind, or we haven't actually enabled enough coping skills where he can communicate what his needs are, which again is another horrible frame of mind. So we need to be able to distinguish and get to know our dogs, what they're saying in the sense that just because your dog, you're, you're seeing an absence of behavior, like uh, don't, don't, don't assume that your dog just, he's not trying to be good. Like maybe he's actually saying, I'm absolutely shitting myself right now, but I don't have the coping skills or the security security network around me to be able to actually express my needs. That's a shit life for a dog. And uh, there's a lot of dogs, I think, who, uh, this comes back to that kind of lack of awareness, I think. It's very easy for dogs to fall into a subservient role really of uh you know we've got to do as i'm told and that's fine and that wouldn't be so bad if we were making sure and ensuring all those physical emotional mental needs were met as well they could be yeah. more robotized if that want of a word but that isn't the case of course and uh, so i think it's just about what i love about this stuff ian yeah when we talk about things um i love i love your outlook on stuff i, I think it's important and these conversations always kind of make my brain go on lots of different journeys but that's the beautiful thing about it and actually this has got nothing to do with us and dogs actually this has got about us and our relationship fundamentally with ourselves first uh and how we can interact with those around us because if we find ourselves in a lot of problematic situations in our relationships with others with our dogs invariably that means that we are struggling with regulation ourselves uh, and, uh, you know, we live in a world that she's a hundred miles an hour where many of us can end up on that runaway train. Uh, we end up celebrating stress. You know, I work eight hours a week. That's brilliant. Isn't it? 
Um, uh, actually, so this is about giving ourselves the two important things. One is to stay humble uh, and to try and allow ourselves to be regulated enough to connect to the needs of others, but also to give ourselves grace. Mm. But it's okay to mess up. It's okay to to not get it right. And the importance of making sure that we have our own return to safety, actually. Yeah. Um, which is great when you have those around you, like your wife and my husband, but actually to trust ourselves to have return to safety for ourselves um, and, and to find the ways that we build that healthy self-esteem and that we recognize the importance of our own worth because that's a good foundation to be really. But uh, yeah. Mate, I could not have summed it up any better myself and i think that is a perfect time to wrap up today but i feel like like yourself like having these conversations my brain goes in many different directions so what i want to what i want to promise to everybody is that we me and you will be doing this again <laughs> yeah anytime and uh uh you know it's, it's hopefully um you know uh we might get to meet one day and you never know but isn't it great that we can connect like this when we're literally, like literally the other side of the world? It's, it's great, isn't it? It's pretty cool. It's, uh, I feel very lucky to be in a position to be able to do this. So thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this today. Yeah, me too. Thanks again. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this week, guys. If you ever want to ask questions, give feedback, or just provide some suggestions regarding the podcast, find me on Ian Shivers, Dog Advocate on Instagram. I'll be happy to help. If you're feeling really generous, leave us a review on whatever platform it is that you're listening to this podcast on. And if you want to nerd out more with us, then find our sponsors because they're the ones that make all of this possible. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by Canine Caregivers. I've had so many people reach out to me over the years, not knowing where to turn to online for reliable and consistent advice on how to raise a healthy and happy dog. The information out there is hard to navigate. It's hard to know who to trust and who not to trust. And frankly, some of it is just downright dangerous. That's why we created Canine Caregivers, a place where you can come and get educational resources and access a supportive community founded on the care approach for people just like you, whether you've just brought a dog into your life or you've got a dog that is experiencing some unwanted behaviors. The content is updated regularly and we constantly keep in touch with our members to make sure that we are bringing relevant and up-to-date content that truly matters to you. There's different tiers of membership for different needs. So you can be sure that you don't have to break the bank to access the information that can literally make all the difference to the quality of life between you and your dog. Head to caninecaregivers.com.au to learn more.